this is Ben Smith. I'm a photographer, and this is my podcast, A Small Voice Conversations with Photographers. Thanks for listening. This is Ben. You're listening to my podcast, A Small Voice Conversations with Photographers. Nice to have you here. How's it going? Don't worry, I'm not going to go into one. Although God knows there are enough reasons to. Uh, instead, I will simply say, I hope you're okay though. Instead, I will simply say that I'm delighted to welcome as my guest this week, the wonderful Daniel Meadows, who I shall introduce properly after a few very quick messages. To wit, if you're a regular listener and you think this podcast is worth the price of a flat white or a decaf skinny latte or whatever is your overpriced beverage of choice per episode, then please do sign up. Did I just split an infinitive or something? I don't know. Please do sign up for a small recur... I did something weird, but it doesn't really matter. Do sign up for a small recurring monthly subscription or if you prefer, make a larger occasional donation at bensmithphoto.com slash a small voice. Do please leave a positive review on iTunes so that others may find out about it. And if you should happen to be in need of a new website, I can sort that out for you using the newly redesigned and improved Squarespace platform so that you don't have to spend loads of time agonizing over how that actually works. This episode of the podcast is supported by the wonderful Charcoal Book Club. And as you may well know by now, Charcoal has opened the call for entries to the fourth annual Chico Hot Springs Portfolio Review and Publishing Prize. Submit your work now through uh, to December 9th for a chance to be one of 58 artists invited to spend the week in Montana with Alessandra Sanguinetti, Jim Goldberg, Vanessa Winship, Todd Heido, Awoshka van der Molen, Raymond Meeks, and 15 of the most respected publishers and organisations in contemporary photography. Attending artists will receive formal portfolio reviews by speakers and reviewers, artist lectures, panel discussions, peer reviews, and additional evening programming over the seven-day event. I think some of that additional evening programming involves uh, drinking and uh, eating, so that's always good. One grand prize winner will be awarded the Charcoal Publishing Prize and will be published and distributed and hanging out in the uh, hot springs, of course, will be uh, published and distributed worldwide by Charcoal Book Club. For more information and to apply to be one of those chosen people, uh, visit ChicoReview.com. That's next April 2020 in Montana and I very much look forward to being there. So photographer, documentarian and digital storyteller Daniel Meadows has spent a lifetime recording British society, challenging the status quo by working in a collaborative way to capture extraordinary aspects of ordinary life through pictures, audio recordings and short movies. He's best known for his 1973-74 journey around England in the free photographic omnibus when he travelled 10,000 miles in a converted double-decker and made 958 portraits in free studio sessions on the streets of 22 different British towns and cities. This is a project he revisited in the 1990s, photographing again some of the subjects of those portraits for his widely published series National Portraits Now and Then. His pioneering community storytelling project BBC Capture Wales encouraged many hundreds of people across Wales to embrace the arrival of the digital age in pop-up workshops by making their own two minutes of TV, framing their memories and pictures into digital stories. Multimedia sonnets from the people. Capture Wales won a BAFTA Kymru in 2002. Daniel taught the documentary photography course with David Hearn in Newport 
Also photojournalism and digital storytelling at Cardiff School of Journalism. Media and Cultural Studies, where he also completed his PhD in 2005. In the 1990s, he taught photojournalism workshops in the emerging democracies of Eastern Europe, also in India and Bangladesh. And after 2000, he travelled repeatedly to Australia and the USA, lecturing about his pioneering work in participatory media. His photographs, and more recently his short films, have been exhibited widely both in the UK and on the continent of Europe. Solo shows include the ICA in London, the Photographer's Gallery, the National Media Museum in Bradford. And his books include Living Like This, Around Britain in the 70s, Nattering in Paradise, A Word from the Suburbs, National Portraits, Photographs from the 1970s, and The Bus, The Free Photographic Omnibus, 1973-2001. to Daniel's entire archive was acquired in March 2018 by the Bodleian Library at the University of Oxford, where there is an exhibition of Daniel's work entitled Daniel Meadows, Now and Then, until November 24th this year, and the accompanying book Now and Then, England 1970 to 2015, was recently also published by the Bodleian. So this was a great pleasure to meet and chat with Daniel, and indeed to see his exhibition, which is currently still on in Oxford, so get down to the Bodleian Library. You want the Blackwell Hall of the Western Library to be specific, because there are different buildings and it's totally free there's a cafe it's oxford for god's sake make a day of it it's gorgeous and um i was pretty nervous i still get pretty nervous especially if i'm talking to a bit of a legend but daniel is just so lovely as you will hear by the way not for nothing but just a little heads up speaking of legends next time on a small verse my guest will be some swedish bloke called anders peterson you're sport rotten i know but before that the equally awesome dr daniel meadows So how was the opening last night? Well, it was fantastic. I mean, uh, I was extremely nervous because, um, yeah, because I, I was trying, um, I don't know, honour the people in the pictures, and uh, so I'd invited quite a lot of people who were in the photographs. Oh, great! And some of them I hadn't seen for twenty years, and then, in parallel to that. Um, I tasked a um, production company from Brighton who'd been on my case for quite some time um, with finding John Payne, who's the lad in the middle of the picture on the cover, the boy holding the pigeon. Yeah, the cover of, of your book. Um, the cover of the book. Yeah, quite, quite a one-on picture of, the, of three kids and one with a pigeon. So you tried to find him? Or they did they find tr- him. Oh, they and did. He'd brought him along last night and wow. filmed us meeting each other for the first time in 45 and a half years. That's incredible. Wow. That must have been quite emotional. It was, um, um, uh, yes, uh, very. And uh, um, he's a lovely man, you know, but he's also quite extraordinary man. Um, he lives in a camper van right. and can still catch pigeons. Right. So they were, f- I mean, I don't, I don't understand how. Anymore. I mean, I worked in TV, but they're making four minutes for the one show, and they were hit, they were filming for three days <laughs> to get four and minutes. The, the second day was all in Portsmouth. They went down to Portsmouth where he lives and filmed him catching pigeons. All oh, right. I, I mean, I obviously haven't seen the film. I've got no idea what it's going to look like. Yeah. But, um, boy, I, I um, it, uh, they could make a half-hour documentary with what they've got. Right. Yeah. Because. Um, I suppose, you know, it's, it's funny to say that, you know, when you see someone after that amount of time, it could be quite a sort of emotional thing. But because you've had a very fleeting uh, exchange with these 
people. But the pictures have kind of you've lived with the pictures subsequently to that. So you know what I mean? It kind of it's it's not really the amount of time you spent with the actual people in them. It's the amount of time you spent with the Particularly pictures. Particularly in the well, I mean, I did. It's a. Uh, what can I remember of that day? I mean, one of the things that most people don't fully appreciate about my bus journey is that I was trying to audio record people as well. Mm. And, you know, I had a rubbishy old, by modern standards, you know, C90 cassette dictaphone machine, really, is yeah. what it was. Um, and it kept breaking down and the batteries were leaked and, you know, all of the problems you had in those days. But I... I did spend a bit of time with John, and he said he could definitely remember me recording him, mm. and that being actually quite a, an important part of the, the process. Yeah. And I had this jacket, a recording jacket I'd designed, which is a tweed jacket which I'd bought in a, junk, in a jumble sale in Lewis in Sussex, um, which was too big for me. And I... I stitched into the lining a huge pocket that would hold the tape recorder and it weighed me all down on one side and then I ran the microphone down into my hand and you could turn it on and off with a little on off switch on the microphone which is a little sort of plastic thing a bit bigger than a I don't know a sharpie felt mm. tip by modern standards and um, and and I could hold the roly flex with the microphone in my hands, so I could adjust the focus and the f-stops and everything, and look into the Roliflex, and I keep looking up at John and taking a picture and holding out my hand with the right. microphone. And he he said he could remember me um, interviewing him. Yeah. Well, so there is, you know, there is this piece of audio which I've subsequently cut with the picture to make one of the little films that's showing mm. downstairs in the. Yeah, and I want I really want to talk to you about all of that because this tendency that you have always had to not just take photographs but to record audio and all kind you know in a way you were sort of ahead of your time to some extent I would say because everyone's very multimedia now. But we all I we should kind of set the context really for the listeners because we are sitting here in the Bodleian Library in Oxford. We are dreaming spires and all that. Definitely. Um, and the show that I you know, was referring to is, is the opening of, of an exhibition you've got here because the Bodleian have basically acquired your entire archive. They have. And so the show uh, is a sort of a celebration of that event in a way. And there's also a book which we were talking about, the cover shot off, and it's called Now and Then, England, 1970-2015. So there's a lot going on. So, yeah, so quite a few of the people from the photographs showed up last night, did they? Yes. That's fantastic. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I always try to turn these things into a bit of an event, and, and I like making connections that are based on what I've listened to from all the people I've photographed over the years. So there was a, there was a love... I mean, if you just take John, because we've been talking about him... Yeah. Because I've got multiple sclerosis, I haven't got the energy to go chasing around the country finding people again. But when Peer Productions phoned me and said, is there some work we could do together? This is a year ago. And I said, well, what sort of work do you mean? They said, oh, we make inserts for the one show, arts inserts. And um, like four minutes, you know. And they're planning this a year ahead. And I'm mm. going, oh, well, a year, that's quite interesting. Where are you from? Brighton. That's not far from Portsmouth, is it? You could find John, you know, because right. I'd already decided I wanted 
the picture of John to be in the exhibition. So, um, you know, I left them to do that work. But in the meantime, a print of John, The Three Boys and the Pigeon, which is owned by James Hyman, the collector, mm. had been showing all through the winter in the Hepworth in Wakefield as part of a show called Modern Nature. And the Hepworth had teamed up with, I suppose, um, Sheffield University to d run a creative writing program. And a woman called Jenny Donison, who's a poet, had, unprompted by any, I mean, I didn't even know this was going on, um, written a poem about John holding his pigeon. And she sent it to me, and it's beautiful, it's lovely, absolutely lovely. And then the Hepworth decided to put the poem and the picture together on Sheffield Railway Station, where it's been all summer. Um, so anybody who's passed through Sheffield mm -hmm. would have seen John's picture and the poem. And so I thought, wouldn't it be nice to invite Jenny? So John and the TV people thought they were surprising me by reuniting us, which they were indeed. But I thought I had a little surprise for them, which was that Jenny could then sort of serenade John right. as part of my speech. Yeah. I was given 15 minutes to have a speech, but I turned it into introducing all these people from the book and from the exhibition who'd, come, who'd turned up, uh, introducing them to the other guests so that they realized it was their party. Mm -hmm. You know, this wasn't about... Just about Daniel Meadows' archive going to the Bodley, and it was their party too. Well, that's almost just an extension of your entire kind of ethos, really, from, yes. from the start, you know, in terms of the importance of the people that you're actually photographing. And listening to them and hearing yeah. their stories, yeah. yeah. Yeah, which we'll definitely get into. But just um, how did this business of the Bodley and acquiring the archive come about then? What's the sort of. Um, I'm going to have to try and keep this short because it's quite complicated. Yeah, um, keep it short. I originally was asked to give my work to Birmingham City Library, as it was then. Um, Birmingham Central Library? Birmingham Central Library, which was, at that time, the photography curator there was a man called Pete James. And in 2004, Pete contacted me and said, I have the Benjamin Stone archive. I also have come across... Um, and a Sunday Times newspaper article from 1974 where your work and his work are compared. I'm putting together something called the Benjamin Stone Legacy Collection. I want to collect Tony Ray Jones, uh, Anna Fox, um, I can't remember, oh, uh, Homer Sykes and yourself. And I want to come and look at your stuff. That was in 2004. Pete then started to visit and look at my archive and stuff. And one day he said, I want... I'd, I, I want your whole archive. I want the whole thing. I don't just want stuff for the legacy collection. I want everything. You, you, we should be able to get the whole lot together. And, you know, I was busy. I was doing lots of other things. And then Val Williams came along uh, wanting to do my retrospective, which was started in the tour um, from 2011. And they both said to me <coughs> at the same time, we can't find our way around your collection. You know, you've got a dark room full of stuff. You know your way. If we ask you something, you pull it off the shelf, but we can't find our way around mm. And Pete said, can't you just give me, you know, a Word document that lists every roll of film you've ever done and a summary of what's on it? I said, just? I said, no, no one's, any idea. <laughs> no one's got that, surely. 
I mean, you strike me as being actually very organised in, in that respect, but not to that extent. Well, the organising started then in right. a big way. And, and um, yeah, so they, they were very good, Pete and, and Val. And mm. um, they helped me. I had some interns coming from colleges and things, which was helpful. But, but basically the day-to-day grind of making those lists was down to me. And I made this massive great document, which I don't know how I found the time and energy to do it, but I did. And I'm so glad I did, because what then happened was it was acquired by Birmingham, and then Birmingham had this sort of existential crisis. You know, it had built this 180-something million pound brand new golden box in the middle of the city, designed by Dutch architects, Meccano. Um statement building which is the state of the art library in Europe you know with all the best facilities and everything and with literally within months of opening it um, they found they didn't have the money to run it and they had 180 staff and they got rid of I think 90 of them and you know like that Um, early retirement and redundancy and all the things that institutions go through and but of course what they lost they've got I can't remember, but millions of photographs, including some very, very important collections of Victorian work and Benjamin Stone. Um, 22,000 glass plates of Benjamin Stone, mm. I think it is. Enormous amount of work. And the whole photography curatorial team was gone. And the problem for me was that they'd acquired my work, but they hadn't accessioned it, which meant that it wasn't copied onto their catalogue. So it was like it was in limbo mm. it was there but even the people who were left behind to look after the archive didn't know what they had right and they quickly lost all the documentation around that so i had this awful time where the, my life's work was locked away in the most perfect storage space but nobody knew anything about it not even the people in charge and um i was doing a talk um at sotheby's institute in london and I don't know, it was one of those evenings where I had a bit of a rant, you know, kind of let loose a bit. And I started talking about you know, gross acts of cultural vandalism and the Tories and austerity and uh, how, you know, closing libraries was low-hanging fruit for a government who wants to shrink the public sector and all that stuff. Um, and it happened that in the audience was Colin Ford, founding director of the National Museum of Photography, Film and Television back in the early 80s. And uh, he was listening to all this, and after everyone had gone, we were packing up, and he came up to me, and he basically just said, you know what, Daniel? Your work should be in the Bodleian. And I didn't really think that much more about it. And then a little while later, I got a phone call from the director here. Colin Ford's been on to me. He's been telling me about your stuff. I want to come and look at it. And he came down with his head of um, modern manuscripts collection here, Susan Thomas, and they spent a day with me. We, I went through everything that was in it. You know, I had records of everything that was in Birmingham. And then started the process over three years of them raising the money to mm. do the show and the book and to pay for an archivist here to do the work. Kelly, the wonderful Kelly Birchmore, who's been doing fantastic work on getting the catalogue up online. Yesterday, the day the book launched, the day the exhibition opened, they also launched the online wow. catalogue yeah. and... You know, sorry, that's it no, went no. on too long, but that's the story, but and it's the story of our times in a way. You know, yeah, but that's that's amazing, and and we should sort of, I guess, explain that, you know, the Bodleian is a obviously hugely historical 
place. It's the it's the library of the University of Oxford, essentially, and um, it's the second biggest library after British Library in in this country. It's the copyright library as well, which means that if you publish a book, one copy of everything you yeah. publish comes here. Right. So it's got every book that's published. Yeah, They're all in yeah. a warehouse in Swindon. So does it does it somehow feel kind of Reassuring or comforting to know that everything's kind of finally. Well, I, I was saying last night, you know, that's John on the cover of my book, you know, who's a you know a lad from Portsmouth, you know, photographed when he was twelve holding his pigeon, and um, here he is now, forty-five years later, and as we would say in Wales, he's cutched up with, cuddled up with, cozied up to, um, you know, the Magna Carta, Shakespeare's first folios. Yeah. The pencil of nature, you know, they're all here. Yeah. Charlemagne's Psalter from 800 AD. Right. You know, every every you, you want and a now book, it's here. Your archive, and also, it's, and you've got a lot of documentation and supporting material. It's something you seem to be the sort of person who keeps everything. I can imagine you're the sort of person who can find you'd find a receipt for something specific. From I think it probably comes ago. out of me just being an extremely anxious. You know, like um, yeah. I think when I started, I couldn't believe that anybody would ever give me money to make photographs and if they ever did I'd keep every receipt and every record of how that money was spent and I'd never dare throw it away and and you know as we moved house from time to time I'd occasionally ditch the odd box of this or that which I really regret now mm. um, but mostly things just got moved from one place to another and filling up at- attic spaces and yeah, um, yeah yeah and so yeah I did have a lot of stuff yeah and um, are you pleased with the way the book has has turned out because that's am, quite a comprehensive yeah, overview of your yes. entire. I mean, archive. I've spent the last um, uh, two years making the book and the exhibition, yeah. and they, I made them very precisely. And the Bodleian people have been terrific. I mean, the publisher was meticulous in lots of ways and in lots of creative ways too. I mean, first of all, I kind of wrote it as a sort of dispassionate in the third person and they they, they suggested I put it back into the first yeah. person and I think that works really well. Um, they suggested additional sections, they suggested uh, little edits and stuff, but basically it is pretty much as I conceived it. And same with the exhibition. I mean, I built a model that I couldn't quite explain clearly enough how I wanted the exhibition to be in these three parts, you know, that there would be the newspapers, which are basically the sort of library evidential research piece, all the background material to do with um, the way that I work. I've worked a lot um, in conjunction with big media, but independent of it. Um, I wanted the the, the the audio to be in this video viewing booth in the in the middle so that you could get intimate with people's voices and then i wanted the the pictures to be on the uh, on the walls and um on the inside walls and trying i had the concept in my head and eventually i just said look can i build you a model and they said yeah so i went away and i made a model out of um, foam rubber basically right, you, know, okay. you can have cushions cut to any shape you want yeah. so I, I, I made all the walls and everything for 10 quid just wow. like ordering cushions online you know yeah. and um, so I had all this foam rubber stuff and then I just um, uh, designed everything in Photoshop and then stuck it on the walls with glue on the foam rubber walls and then it was one tenth size because my maths isn't very good and so it turned out to be quite a big model but um, you know then I came up on Tuesday uh, earlier in the week 
and all the carpenters were building this thing and stuff. And it was on the floor. My model was on the floor right, in the middle right. of the room, and they were all going, well, where do you think this bit goes, mate? You know, oh, you look at the model. Oh, yeah, there it is. Yeah, yeah. You know, and it was so, I thought, oh, what a wonderful way. And yeah. they've just basically taken my model and made it. Proper 3D kind of you know, yeah, yeah, rendering so of what you wanted. And uh, what's going to happen? Will it, will it kind of tour a bit, the, the show, do you think? Yeah, well... Um, the Bodleian's going to be working with um, uh, Northern Narratives. Tracy Marshall mm. is starting to put together a little um, touring schedule for the work. We're not quite sure how it's going to look, and that's why I don't want to say too much about it because it's, yeah, yeah. it's her thing. But yeah, next year and the year after, there will be bits of it, or in some way or another, it will have manifestations mm-hmm. outside of in you know wider a field in the, yeah, com- yeah. in the country great well um i think we should kind of fill in a lot of blanks or 40 yeah. years worth of blanks so we should go back to the beginning because i wanted to ask you a little bit about your sort of formative experiences um you were born in gloucestershire i think you were born in a pretty you grew up in a pretty small village initially uh but but basically your your the main kind of uh, I suppose significant experience for you was was boarding school because you went to yes. you were you were sent to boarding school. Um, so what was that like for you? It's like looking back into another century. I mean, I, my father was an an agent, which means that basically you have a peer of the realm who owns a large chunk of British countryside, English countryside in this case in Gloucestershire, and he pays an agent to run it for him. So he's like the boss's man. Mm. And um, he was, you know, a trained land agent who knew about land management and stuff. And he went to work there just before the war. And um, and then he went to, he was in the army for a while. And then after the war, he came back. And I was born in 1952. And we lived in a, what they call a grace and favor house on the estate. Big, big mm. house, belonged to the estate. Everybody in the village lived in, Ever diminishing smaller houses, depending on their role in the in the, in the feudal system yeah. that it was. Uh, and I found, you know, looking back, I found this in, an incredibly. I mean, my parents were lovely. You know, my, I was loved, and a lot of children can't grow up saying that really. And I was. I know I was loved. But the structure was very confining, you know. And like, I, I wasn't allowed to play with kids in the village because it would, it would. Um, compromise my dad's position and if i got right. too friendly to a tractor driver's son or something my dad needed to sack him or something <laughs> right. problem and there were only 54 people living in the village anyway you know. um and the and also my mother wanted to bring me up as a gent you know yeah and so as soon as i was um eight i went off to boarding school mm. which is very young to be kind of sent away seems to me yeah and i think it really Messes with your brain. Yeah. It certainly, I've spent most, there's hardly a day in my life goes by where I don't think about things that went on in both, either or both of those schools that I went to. Um, And they were Spartan, yes. Um, My biggest school I went to when I was 13 was actually quite a cruel, brutal place. Mm. And um, yeah, I, they weren't famous public schools, they were minor West Country boarding Mm. schools. Uh, but yeah, horrible. I'd want to keep people away from all of that. Yeah. But the thing that 
how it affected my photography or what became my photography or my documentary exploration was that it was the whole thing was predicated on a kind of systematic snobbery about knowing your place knowing who was below you who was above you typecasting everybody was typecast if we had visitors to the house my mother would spend the next you know two hours telling you that this was not the right way to behave or this was an admirable way to behave and so on and everything and you had reasons to dislike people million reasons to dislike people and you know it was they came from another time and my mother had multiple sclerosis it's quite rare for a, a child it's about you only get a two percent chance or something of getting it when mm. your parents have it. anyway but i've got it as well so um, you know, she probably, I don't know whether she ever went in a supermarket, I probably, probably not. Um, she, she lived, uh, well, you know, we had a, a housekeeper and she, she treated her like, she's, you know, it would be un, unacceptable now. Mm. She lived in, uh, she was called Maisie and she loved me a lot and I loved Maisie. She lived in the attic, you know. Right. Uh, she was, she was... Her lift didn't quite go to the top floor, but you know, she mm. was a oh, what a soul, Maisie, <laughs> Maisie Lockett Cogbill. Yeah. So and and so this experience um, of you know the sort of confinement of public school um, that kind of sparked your interest in in meeting other people, right? Definitely. I mean, yeah. I mean, I was just fizzing by the time I was eighteen as the kind of kid who could sit through a test and you know just staring at the teacher and not doing any work and right. you know pretending to eat the pencil or something so you didn't you, know. you didn't like do very well in exams or anything um didn't i mean i got whatever i got i can't remember now six o levels and then yeah, i right. did get three a levels but they were all d's and e's and then i was sent back for a final year and then i i got kind of e's and f's i mean yeah it just got worse I and, and i was quite disruptive but the good thing about my last year at school was that i made a stand at one point a um, very public stand against the authority and everything and it was this you know it was I was 17, so it would be, you know, like 1969 and um, 1969 going into 1970. And they basically said to me, we'll do a deal with you. We'll let you off all the other, you know, we won't give you any responsibilities like being a prefect or anything, as if, as if I ever would have mm -hmm. wanted to do that. Um, but you've got to agree not to be disruptive um, and you've got to spend time in the art room. It's like a punishment. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you go to the art yeah. room. And the only working class teacher in the whole school was a man called Mr. Twombly, who came from Yorkshire, came from Leeds. And he was, in a way, my saving grace, really. Um, Pat Twombly. Mm. If you're still alive, Pat, yeah. thank you. Um, and and he, he basically showed me that I, I might be able to go to college and do photography. Yeah. And we went to London on a school trip and I saw the Bill Brandt exhibition. Um, and it just, the, the Hayward Gallery, mm. and it just blew my socks off. Right. So that was a massive inflection point. It was you. like, you know, St. Paul on the road to Damascus. <laughs> no, really, you know, because I, I saw, you know, I've often tried to analyze why it was so important. And 
And I think it was really because he used, he really did use the camera like a passport to move between the social classes. And that one person could be down a mine in South Wales one minute and sitting at his lordship's table in Eaton Square the next. This to me was sort of magical. Mm. So you wanted to do, to do that as well? Yeah, and he photographed, he went to lovely places. Yeah. And he photographed naked ladies. You know, I mean, you know, when you're 17 and you walk into a room full of Bill Brandt's nudes, you know, that's, phew, I'd never seen anything like that. Well, you'd had no experience of girls, right? I mean, no, I didn't know single... any girls. I didn't know anybody of color. So, yeah, so you've got to, th- you've got to figure what's not to love about this. Right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. So then, um, so essentially you, you did decide to pursue the photography and you went to, um, Manchester Poly, Polytechnic. I did. I did. Um, there are there are no polytechnics anymore, and there have not been for a long time. But it was a sort of um, how does one explain that to those not familiar with the English, uh, you know, education system? It was a it was a sort of second tier down from a university in a sense, wasn't it? A polytechnic. It was a weird mixture at that time. In that, um, a lot of regional colleges were being amalgamated into Polytechnic. So Manchester Polytechnic had been, I think, three other colleges, been a, a, some kind of an engineering technical place. It had been some kind of a teacher training place. And it had also been some kind of an art school, Manchester Art School. And we were the first intake mm. of the Polytechnic students. And they didn't really know how to do it. You know, They had Jack Tate, who was the head of the school, who was you know, really keen to make photography a special place. But he had to inherit some teachers who were left over from the old technical college. Mm. And whilst at the same time bringing in lecturers who were, you know, more creative. And so, you know, you'd spend half your day. I mean, we, I'm not kidding. I, looked, I dug out the notes and they're all here in the Bodleian and anybody can now look at them if they want to. Mm. <laughs> You've got a Bodleian library card, which is easy enough to get. Um, my notes from my theory lectures are, are extraordinary. They're all about stuff that's measured in foot lumens. Wow. We were taught about, about the science of photography. of photography. And we had, you know, you didn't have a camera. You had to make one out of cardboard. And then you were given a white cube to photograph. And you put your piece of 5.4 film in the back of your pinhole camera. And you had to have calculated the size of the hole in the piece of tinfoil at the front, uh, exactly the diameter of the hole, and bought the needle that was exactly the right size to punch the hole mm. to get the maximum amount of quality into your image at the right focal distance at the back of the camera. And then you had to photograph a white cube in the studio and then measure the characteristic curve of the emulsion on right. a densitometer. And if it wasn't 45 degrees, you had to start all over again. <laughs> so this was kind of... Did you hate all that then? Because that's just... Oh, clearly you weren't interested in that aspect of it. Well, it's how Martin Parr and I were thrown together because he yeah. was the same year as me. And we just... You know, this was hard. This was really hard. You, you, know, you we thought were, you'd gone to... <laughs> figure out how to take those Bill Brandt pictures, right? And yes. you're studying physics. Yes. So, yeah, famously, for people who know your, you uh, and your work, yeah, you, you became good buddies with Martin Parr. Were you, was there rivalry between you in terms of the photography? Not at the beginning. We were thrown together because we, would, we just, uh, for self-defense, really. And then I had a car, 
and he didn't and that meant that we could get out and do things that maybe some of the other students couldn't um, didn't have the opportunity to do and anyway they all wanted to be in the studio and they wanted to be commercial photographers they wanted to follow that route you know into advertising and fashion mm-hmm. and all of that we weren't interested in that at all yeah. and so we used to go take ourselves off on little adventures and sometimes we'd sleep in the car and sometimes you know we'd just go off for a day trip and and um and we began doing things together mm. and what we the thing that we did mo- the thing that both of us we agree on um because we disagree on quite a lot of our memories but one of the things we really agree on is that we all used to me and martin and i had a girlfriend at the time called shireen who used to make the most fantastic curries and um we used to take the curry and go over to brian griffin's flat at the weekend and where the, there was a lovely for a young photographer called Jackie Ward and a sculptor called John Greenwood. And we used to meet, and this was where we tried to work out what was going on in photography. This right. is, you know, we would sit down and we'd get copies of album and creative camera, and we'd look at Gary Winogrand pictures and we'd go, what? You know, or Diane Arbus and go, yeah. What? So you're sort of turning each other on to different things or just collectively just kind of immersing yourselves in, in it? And yeah, just trying to work out what was going on in contemporary photography because yeah. we didn't, weren't getting any of that at the college. Mm. And, and, but we were, all, we, all had, we were all complete work... Well, me, Brian and Martin were complete workaholics. You know, if we didn't have to sleep, we wouldn't have done it. You know. I mean, we <laughs> right. did, there was a wonderful cinema called the Arban Cinema in Hume... Um, which is long gone, and the bloke who ran it um, was loved the art students, and he used to after the main you know Hollywood feature was over at eleven o'clock or whatever on a f- Friday night, he'd run stuff for the art students, and he'd play you know or Warhol's films or something, right, right. or a complete season of the Marx Brothers or something, right. and Bob Dylan's Ronaldo and Clara, I remember, and. Uh, and you could go there and you 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 kind of sit down put your feet on the seat you know and you'd sit and you'd smoke and watch the tv watch the cinema screen and we'd still be there in the morning <laughs> and you'd, you'd leave the cinema at sort of seven o'clock yeah. on a saturday morning and walk through the wet streets and having Manchester. yeah having been sort of you know t- inspired or, or kind of at least uh sent to t- sleep by 24 t- hours yeah. of warhol <laughs> well that warhol yeah but i can mention some of the other stuff Certainly, the Marx Brothers would be good. So, um, yeah. So, so your Graham Street project, which is the first thing that I guess we should talk about, um, because it was the first thing that you kind of went and and did. Um, we, we, yeah, maybe I can I can just ask you about it because, and um, one thing you say, you, you you know, you were a doer at that point. Where did all that come from? What I was just what had so much energy. Motivated. I didn't want to sit down and read and listen. I didn't want to listen to anybody else talk, giving me all kind of value systems about how to... I hated, you know, like mainstream media, top, all this top-down stuff. I, and now, you know, we were all living in Wally Range or Moss Side. I was living on the corner of Yarbrough Street and Alexandra Road. And they were pulling the place down around us. And I thought to myself one day, what... What is my job as a photographer? How do I relate to this? They're tearing out the middle of a city. I'm in the middle of this city. What, how do I respond? And why did I ask that question? And I think it was because I'd seen Beautiful, Beautiful, the, um, the film with Bruce Davidson in it, that was public, which was shown by the, made by the BBC and shown in 1969. Right. 
a really seminal documentary for those of you who've never seen it. Get a hold of it. I wonder copy. if it's still. I wonder if it's still out there somewhere online or something. I'd love to. Find I have it. got a, a, um, a BBC producer, friendly BBC producer, found me a copy a couple wow. of years ago, and I rewatched it, and it's as good as ever I thought it yeah. was. And the best bit is Bruce Davison talking about East 100th Street and he's wandering he's walking seemingly on the roof somewhere in New York and he's got a Sinar 5.4 camera on a tripod um, and he's strutting across the roof and he's going we've just put men on the moon and we don't even know who lives next door to us (laughs) (laughs) and then you see him working with these people in this incredibly intimate way um, making pictures and uh and I thought, I want to be a bit of that. I want a bit of that. And um, you could rent a shop. You know, it, it might be pulled down next week. You could rent it very cheaply. Um, the barber had moved out. It was just a few yards away from where I was living. And, and I thought, I'd rent this shop and I'd invite people in. So rather than tell people what I thought the story was about Moss Side, I'd just go and rent a shop. And if people wandered in and wanted to tell me or have their picture taken, I'd try and do it. Mm-hmm. That's what that was all about. And I had a tutor called John Fisher who said to me, if you're thinking of having a little small room where people come and have their picture taken, he said, have you come across this? This is a man called Irving Penn. And he took a little dark tent around the world and invited people in to have their pictures taken, which it hadn't been published then. It was published, I think, in the following year, 74 maybe, um, uh, worlds in a small room. Ah, so that's where the whole dark background thing came. Because I wanted to ask you about how you you sort of you know uh, came by that ultimately that way of doing it. Because um, they're shot with flash and the background's very dark. There's not flash actually. It's just one oh, big. It's it one not? big huge studio light. That oh, I, like I borrowed a from the college. Fixed yeah. light. Okay, yeah. okay. And, when the, and I used to go when the fashion students had all finished with the black colorama backdrop. I used to go and they'd throw it away because it had marks on it. Or whatever. I used to wrap it all up and take it down to my right, side right. and then sellotape it together. <laughs> okay, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, you did invite people in and, and I guess people were generally quite responsive to, to it. And you know, Well, there's a lovely thing that Paul Trevor says about um, working in working class communities in the north of England in the 70s was that the parents would let the children be the, what's the expression, um, the attack dogs. <laughs> yeah. You know, you'd go out, go walk down a street and you'd be mobbed by, you know, 20 children would be mobbing you. And you had to work out how to deal with this. How were you, how you, were you going to deal with 20 kids moderating, mobbing hmm. you, saying, take my picture, mister, Mr. Foti Man, take my picture, that kind of thing. And, um, I think yeah, we're different people work in different ways. But I thought if I could have a shop, then I could at least control, control how many people yeah. were coming through the door. Yeah. And my girlfriend Shireen, she used to come and help and kind of chat to the kids and stuff. Right. And and so I could work with one or two at a time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but I did also teach them how to process film and things. But it was kids who came first, and then kids would bring their parents, and then the parents would come and sort of check you out. You know, they'd be a bit more hard, mm. you know, and they'd say, what are you doing here, kind of thing, you know. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes it was because they didn't want you trading um, when they were tr- doing something competitive, like second-hand clothes. And sometimes it was just, you know, who are you? Mm. You know, you weirdo. Right, right. You know, well, now it'd be, you know... They'd, oh, my they'd, God, they'd I don't, just, you couldn't do yeah, it now. you couldn't do think. it. I wanted to just read a little bit from, from the book because you were saying um, 
There are many forces impelling me. Strong push factors were the visceral aversion I had for the insidious petty snobbery of my upbringing and the mean-spiritedness of my schooling. The biggest pull factor was a strong urge to adventure in other people's lives. And then you talk about, um, well, the, the beautiful, beautiful film um, and the Bill Brandt exhibition, which are the two things you've already mentioned. So those were the, the things that really had kind of, yeah, it inspired you to... All my work really has been about, has, you know, if I look back, it's been about trying to find ways of generating chance encounters with strangers. Mm, mm. Because of my upbringing, I never wanted to say, oh, you're lower middle class, or you're, you know, this kind of person, or that person, or you belong to this tribe, or that. I always really hated that. Even right. when it got to be trendy, you know, talking about teenage subcultures, you know, punks and post-punk. I always hated that. And all I was interested in was the individual, you know, right, in right. the picture. Yeah. So all of my work's always been about trying to unearth the person inside. Yeah. But I heard you say that basically you, these pictures depressed you in a way because you didn't feel that they looked like how good pictures were supposed to look. Is that really true? Yeah, no, I've always thought my work was rubbish. Every, every time I've made pictures, I've always just thought I've made bad really? work. Yeah. And it took me a long time to realize that I was making my own work and that my own work stood in its own terms. But I, I never was confident that I'd made good work, you know. No, I think that's probably quite common among young photographers, but um, I carried that all through my life. I mean, if you listen to the, there are some of, some of the time that I was living on my bus, I I made a I kept an audio diary, and some of listening to some of me droning on, you know, eleven o'clock at night when I'm really depressed in the pouring rain in a and the you know in a car park in Hartlepool or somewhere, yeah. and 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 um. And I, 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 you know, I've spent all this time, all this energy, and I haven't taken any pictures that I care about. You know? Right. So you're pretty hard on yourself. Very. Yeah. Well, maybe we'll pick pick that up again later. Um, but what were your sort of main takeaways from this project then, in terms of you know, uh, I guess what you'd sort of learn about um, photography, or you know, about dealing with, you know, people. The main takeaway on- was I loved doing. Um, documentary work from the bottom up mm. that what came through the door was much better than anything I could research um, by looking at newspapers and magazines or you know trying to be in touch with the zeitgeist what came through the door was so inspiring people would just come in and they'd ask you stuff and tell you stuff and tell you jokes mm. and and, um, and I thought god if I could put that on wheels Right. You could do such a brilliant portrait of Britain if you could just put that little shop on wheels and take it round. And so that's what I did. I mean, I spent the whole of my final year at college raising money. Yeah. I mean, it, it, in modern parlance, you'd say crowdfunding. But I mean, I was writing 10 letters. A day. I went into the Central Reference Library in Manchester um, and pulled off all these directories of industry and so on and who's who and those kind of books and looked up the names of directors of companies that I recognize, you know, Calagas, Fison's, I don't know, Sun Alliance Insurance. And I had to look for the names of the directors and I then looked them up in somewhere else and see if they had any love of the arts. And anybody who had any love of the arts, I'd write them a handwritten letter mm. with a little brochure that I'd had printed as a result of raising some money from working at Butlins all summer. And 
Um, by modern, again, by modern standards, that brochure is excruciatingly poor looking. It looks like a really bad photocopy. But <laughs> let me tell you, that costs money to make. Yeah. And um, yeah, I wrote ten of those a day because I realised that if you wrote fewer, you didn't get one positive response. So out of ten, you get yeah. nine that were no good, but one that was helpful, what sponsor you in kind. Oh, come and see us right. when you're in London. So you were pretty on. kind of focused and Very, driven. Yeah, and yeah. yeah you yeah. were not messing about. No. So that's a good takeaway, I think, a good learning from that. And yeah, like you say, so it became the free photographic omnibus. Um, but so where did the bus, well, was that a light bulb moment, the whole bus idea then? Because you wanted to put it on wheels. So I suppose it was the next... Obvious yeah, I thing, thought let's put the shop on wheels, and then I thought of Cliff Richard and Summer <laughs> Holiday, right. which is a very vintage reference, Daniel. Like, I mean, uh, you know, for, for the youngsters, they're going to be like, I don't know what any of that. Well, it would means. be cool to say, you know, it was the Merry Pranksters or something. Yeah, yeah. No, I didn't know a, about the Merry a, Pranksters, but Cliff right. in Summer Holiday. I don't yeah. know why I'd seen that film when I was. Yeah, I, I saw know, it. Ten or something. Right, I saw it when I was a kid. Must have been a few years later. But yeah, it was. It was. Uh, <laughs> people can uh, Google it. Yeah, uh, see it on YouTube. Summer holiday by Cliff Cliff, Cliff, uh, Cliff Richard. Um, very much of its time, um, <laughs> and and kind of but sweet and innocent and kind of yeah. Yes, yeah. Um, so yeah. So but before before the bus journey actually mm. began, you did the Butlins thing, right? Is that yes? Is that well, in the. Um, with in Martin the, Parr. Yeah, in the summer of uh, 1972, I'd finished doing the shopping Graham Street, and Martin Parr and I had read somewhere in one of the photo news publications of the day that there was a photography gallery um, opening in York, um, and Andy Spoxton and Val Williams were the directors, and um, they were looking for some work by young photographers to champion. And we drove over there, and um, I think the time we were, were there, they were actually living in an old ambulance in the car park. They didn't have a gallery. They had There was a leather goods shop that they had a little space in, and they were looking to lease a space in the town, uh, in the centre of the city, which they did in the end, in the shambles. And they said to us, look, if you go and, if you go and shoot something this summer, bring it back to us in the autumn, and... If we like it, we'll think about putting it on. And hopefully by then we'll have our gallery space. Um, and Martin and I needed to earn money. We didn't have any money. And I, um, and we signed up to be walkie photographers at Butlins in Filey in Yorkshire. And, um, yeah. And we you decided might have to explain what that is. A walkie photographer, okay. Um, Just briefly. Well, it, I don't know. It, uh, you, you're a holiday maker. You go to Butlins. In those days, most people didn't have cameras. Um, the film was expensive. It was complicated to do, and the cameras broke easily. Da da da. So Butlins would give, have professional photographers who would photograph you at random around the camp doing things and at various formal sessions, like right. eating in your dining hall or attending a glamorous granny contest or something. Mm. And at every point. You could turn, there'd always be a photographer somewhere there. And the walkies were ones who walked around with a, a, a book of um, stubborn receipt books in their jacket pocket. You had a blazer, gold, brown blazer with gold piping. And um, 
uh, if somebody wanted their picture taken, they'd come up to you and say, can you take my picture doing this thing? And you'd take a picture and you'd tear off the stub and give it yeah. to them. And then they could go into the camp photography shop the next day and get their Buy print. print yeah. yeah. So, yeah, a little bit of sort of extra revenue for the... We might have to explain what a Butlins is, come to think of it. But Butlins I mean, is a, a holiday camp, mass yeah. entertainment. Quintessentially um, English kind of a thing. Um, but yeah, was big in the, that time. Yeah, Billy Butlin was a clever guy in that he started his holiday camps just before the war. The war broke out and instead of going, oh my God, I've got all the, you know, he had, I think, just two by then that were on, on the coasts. Um, um, Skegness was certainly functioning before the war. Instead of going, oh my God, I've just invested all this money and the wall's come and now it's inside a you know, coastal protection zone or whatever. He went to the Ministry of Defence and said, how much are you spending on Hutman accommodation for your soldiers who are training for you know, beach landings and so on? And the military told him and he said, I'll halve the price. Right. So he built holiday camps, but they were passed off as accommodation for right. soldiers. Yeah. And Clever. so after the war, I mean, his deal was that he'd get them all after. I can't yeah. remember what they the revert back to him, and then they become holiday camps. Exactly, again. brilliant entrepreneurial. So the, yeah, it's a brilliant spirit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and so you know, you, you were basically going on holiday in a soldier's quarters on the, <laughs> on the seaside, but it was painted nice, pretty colour. Yeah. So, so you and Martin were sort of wandering around, I suppose, and um, but also trying to do your own do your own thing as it were and how did it was it almost like okay you go to that corner and i'll go to this corner and i'll see you later oh it was very well no it was very well organized i mean the the work we were doing for money was very well organized and it was all on commission you had you had Mm. to work together But in terms of your personal stuff i mean no we didn't even discuss it with each other i don't think oh right no you were just doing just wandering about and i i decided i wanted to try and do everything in color Mm. um uh, and I did shot, shoot some black and white as well. Martin, I think, was working all in black and white at that time. He was, yeah. And um, so the colour is what I wanted to sort of, I mm. suppose, ask you about because that would be the, you know, kind of the most significant thing. Because, as you say, Martin was still working in black and white at that stage. I guess most people were. So what what, what prompted you to try a bit of colour? I always wanted to work in colour because I. I felt the world was in colour and we should be making pictures in colour. But my community practice, like working in Graham, Green Street, as we must call it now. I've learned to call it Green Street in Moss Side. Um, uh, you know, you couldn't... You know, I'm working down there, I'm developing film with some kids, showing them how their pictures are. You couldn't do that in colour. You know, you need a full colour lab. It was very expensive to do. And the, uh, and so if you weren't going to have your own colour lab, which you you wouldn't even dream of doing, you'd have to use a commercial one. And then, you know, unless you paid top rates, which I had no money. So you, you'd, the film was expensive, and then it would take three or four days to get the picture back, and then it would be cropped, and it would probably be not a very good print anyway. It was such a horrible thing working uh, for me, you know, all that delay and not having control, and oh, it was just a nightmare. Mm. But at Butlins, we worked on a, with an E6 line, and we used Ektachrome. Well, I didn't because I wasn't trusted with color film um, from, by the Butlins people. I had to work in black and white, but um, they were using an E6 line, and there was uh, Ektachrome film. So I began. You know, I could see people working with ectochrome transparency film, and I thought, I'll have a go at that. Mm. And um, I shot quite a lot. 
We used very few of them in the exhibition. Val and Andy gave us the exhibition, Add Impressions, that autumn, that opened that November. First exhibition in the main gallery space that they got um, in the shambles. Um, uh, uh, and it was mainly a black and white ex- exhibition. And the, but there were just these little... I made these little vignettes of four little pictures together, mounted. Um, and then there'd be, I think there were about four of those, so there were probably about 16 colour pictures that went into the exhibition. Yeah. But were you being inspired by any other colour work that was sort of, you know, starting to appear from the States and that kind of no, thing? I'd never it seen it. Pre- not by then. I can't pretend Eggleston. that I'd never seen Eggleston or anything like that. I didn't right. see Eggleston for another 10 years. Right, right. The first so, time I saw Eggleston was... Um, uh, when Pete Fraser um, managed to get that show together in Bristol in the 80s. Mm. That was much later. Yeah. So it was quite pioneering, really, at that point to be to be interested in colour because it was, as you you know, have said before, very kind of considered to be very much not, you know, uh, in any way kind of professional or, you know, what, you know, There were people was working like, in colour, but... Um, but you know, you picked up your Sunday Times magazine, which was, you know, the place where you saw the work. And Don McCullen was... I mean, this, people do forget that Don McCullen's Biafra story was shot half in colour and half in black and white. We're familiar with the very famous photograph of the sort of Madonna and child starving mother and baby. But that story, if you look at the magazine, the actual original magazine, most of it's in colour. Right, interesting. Yeah. Or at least half of it's in colour anyway. Yeah. So there was colour being used. Um, but... But the work that really inspired us, you know, East 100th Street, Vietnam Inc., you know, these great bodies of work, when the Diane Arbus's work that we were seeing for the first time in the Sunday Times, were all in black and white, yeah. and that's what we aspired to. But, you know, I was just experimenting with colour, and I loved the colour work I did at Butlins. I wish I'd done much more colour in my life. Mm. But, you know, working, doing the kind of community approach that I was getting to adopt... It wasn't ever going to be a runner. I never made money out of documentary work. And you needed money to do colour. You really yeah, yeah. did. Well, you did another collaboration with Martin, which was the June Street thing. And that involved basically photographing people in their homes, kind of working class families inside their uh, council houses or, or whatever. How did that come about? Um, he and I, on one of our trips out, trying to avoid doing studio work, yeah. <laughs> went to an open day at... Uh, um, well, this is my version of the story. Martin might give you another one. Um, but I remember, and there's certainly a picture of us visiting Coronation Street at the Granada Studios in Manchester. Is a famous soap opera. A famous TV soap, soap opera. opera in this country. Which is, well, purports to be about working class life in the north of England and is set in back-to-back terrace streets in Salford. But in 1973, which was when we made those pictures... That Salford was being demolished, and Granada built their own Salford in their back lot. Right, yeah. And they stopped doing any filming out on location. And we thought this was quite funny, that there was this mythology being made that was incredibly popular about what northern working-class life was, whereas people were all being moved out of these terrace streets and moved into tower blocks and so on. Mm. And... So we thought we'd try and find the very last street that, Coron- that Granada had used for Coronation Street filming and photograph everybody in it before they were moved out. And um, mm. that's what we did. I mean, I drafted a letter 
which we posted through people's doors. We knocked on doors and they all said no. And then eventually somebody said yes. And then when we gave her her picture back, an old little old lady, she obviously showed it to the neighbours. And the neighbours went, oh, we'll have one of those. And then before we knew where we were, we'd pretty much got everybody in the street. I mean, we did it over about three months between mm. Christmas and Easter. Because I've, I've heard you say that, you know, that you feel like these pictures deliver. And I was just wondering, you know, why you think that is in this case. I think they deliver because... An enormous number of people. I mean, it's very interesting. Last night, Richard Ovenden, who is the Bodley's librarian, the boss man here who makes it all happen, an incredibly nice man um, and a real can-do kind of a guy. And I owe him a lot because he's, you know, he's got my work in, in here. Mm. He grew up in a house like that. Right. And uh, also... When I show the first time I was in a gallery where these were being shown, a proper gallery, you know, art gallery in the north of England was in the National Media Museum in Bradford, um, and I st- just sat in the corner of the gallery while people walked past these pictures. It's in 2011 of my retrospective, and they stimulated conversation in a way that I've never seen in a gallery before. And everybody had an experience of living in those kind of houses at some point. You know, I lived in a house like that some of the time when I was a student, and uh, everybody either had, you know, who lived in the north of England had either a friend or a relation or somebody who lived in a house if that, like that if they hadn't lived in it themselves. So I think they really, because we did them as a typology, mm. in other words, we looked into the room towards the sofa, uh, which wasn't always in the same place, but basically the the, the, the main seating area is in the middle of the yeah. pictures. Um, and we asked every living creature to be there. So there's one picture with the the one you're looking at at the moment has a tortoise. Yes, a tortoise. <laughs> and there's a budgerigar that moved right. in the cage. All the exposures were about a quarter of a second. We put a bright light bulb in the middle of the room, took right. 50 pence with us to put into their coin in the slot machines for their electricity meter. Um, and, um, yeah, and, and we just did them the same way. And I think they deliver because they resonate with so many people who who have experience of living in a house mm. like that. And then with the passage of time, they take on a whole kind of you know, added kind of dimension in a way. But even at the time, like cont- contemporaneously, I suppose, yeah, they still had some real kind of power. And, I mean, is it still possible? How, how, how do you think young photographers now should, should strive to make sure, you know, that their pictures deliver as well? Well, I think... You don't need to look very far for whatever story you're going to do. You know, there's a story. Every first of all, you know, the old cliche about everyone having a story to tell is true. You just have to learn how to listen. We haven't talked much about that part of my work, the oral history side of it. But the, yeah, but in terms, but that. in terms of photographers and, and photography, there's a story to be had on every street. And if if no one else is photographing it, then that's great, isn't it? You've got subject matter that only you are photographing. Right. So if you're photographing all the people who live and work in that building over the road, then no one else is doing it. But, you know, I guess the problem is there's just so much familiarity now. And in fact, I, f- I remember someone said, um, there was a voice on one of your multimedia pieces uh, uh, on your Vimeo page, which I also want to get onto because I need the listeners to know that you've got a brilliant uh, Vimeo page full of uh, little videos and um, this is a very uh, important part of your practice this digital storytelling thing but um, 
Yeah, someone made the point that, you know, in those days, a camera was quite a novel thing and quite a, quite a special thing and it made you feel in some way special that someone wanted to photograph you, you know, even if you might have some slight kind of, uh, you know, suspicion or, 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 you know, uncertainty. But um, that's obviously entirely not the case anymore. And because everyone's, you know, like ridiculously over it, you know, as far as that goes. So I guess that's a, that's a problem that, you know, you wouldn't have had back in those days, that just to get people to actually be in front of the camera is possibly more difficult now. Would you think, would you agree with that? Yeah, I would. And that's why one of the reasons why I started doing digital storytelling in the, you know, around the turn of the millennium, once the digital age had arrived, it seemed to me this was, we suddenly had all the, all these new tools we needed to think of a new way of working, those of us who were into documentary work. You know, for years and years, no matter how close you try to get to people, um, you aren't those people, you know, the, the old George Orwell thing. You know, you may be sleeping in a, in a uh, um, homeless man's shelter in some bug-ridden hole, hell hole in Wigan or something, but the fact is, if you're middle-class and educated, you can walk out of there and... You can have another life, yeah. and um, you know you are always different from the people you're working with. And um, but the digital age mean, meant that suddenly people could do it for themselves. They had the tools; they could learn quite quickly. The, the tools in terms of the technology, but what they couldn't learn quickly was the storytelling. So you had to. I adopted a, um, this thing called digital storytelling, where. Um, I learned about it in America. I, I was lucky enough to be sent on a research trip to America when I was working at the um, Center for Journalism Studies at Cardiff University. And I came back having met this wonderful bunch of people in um, California from the Center for Digital Storytelling. And it just seemed to me that it was the natural extension of my own practice that you could instead of going around in a bus and pointing the camera and the microphone at people and no matter you know get engaging with them and so on now you could put the camera into their hands you could put the microphone into their hands and you could help them to learn how to frame the story of their lives through um through through telling the story so we used to run these digital storytelling workshops um and the bbc embraced the project and we ran it for when I say we, me, and the team that they helped me to build there and the executive producer I worked for there and so on. Six years, I think, we worked on it, um, beginning from 2001 till eight, roughly. Mm. And uh, we went round Wales in a... Uh, it was done for BBC Wales, and we went round Wales in a, in a van with a lab load of laptops. And it was before YouTube and before... Um, broadband and before um, um, uh, Facebook um, uh, but after the coming of the digital age mm. so it was in that in between time because the funny thing about it is is that you know you did this from the st it's almost like you were preparing for this digital age which <laughs> at a point when it wasn't even you know imaginable you know well it was, it was like a very Daniel shaped yeah. event you know you know because you were always yeah. like you say out there with the kind of lo-fi uh, recording yeah. devices of the day and then once the digital age came along it was like ah oh, this is finally what i've been waiting <laughs> yeah for. exactly it was magic it was yeah. fantastic and yet but you you hate social media though don't you is that not just another platform anti-social media yeah i mean I, what i yeah the re i mean I, isn't, I isn't that just a platform for promoting digital storytelling in a way it could be um 
it, it has been and it is for a lot of people. But for me, my problem with social media is it's so shouty. It, it is shouty, yeah. It's me first and it's me, me, me in a way that is often also um, very dismissive of other people. That's there's true. A lot of, there's a lot of, um, maybe not cruelty, but it's a bit like the dormitory. From my boarding school days, right, yes, you know, lots of bullies and yeah, people who are just yeah, gobby. and then people who are just trying to get a bit of peace, and you know, yeah. and then someone goes and pees in their bed because they think it's <laughs> funny, and, yeah. you know. Um, so I have a bit of a visceral loathing of mm. anti-social media, but at the same time, I realise how it can work very well for people. So I don't want to be completely dismissive about it. It's, maybe it's just the grumpy old man in me is creeping in now. You know, I'm 67. Mm. I, think there's, I think there's two sides to it. I mean, I think there is, there is a side to it, which I see a lot on my sort of Facebook feed, which is people basically telling everyone about some th- achievement that they've had, like, um, you know, they've won something or they've got their work somewhere. And a lot of people just saying well done congratulations you know so that's the other side of the coin i do see that a lot i mean that happens a lot so you know there are good people out there just going yeah, yeah well done you know it's like a yes, it's, it's like nice, it's yeah. a digital it's a virtual pat on the back and a kind of well done you know yeah, and, and i have a facebook page and this morning after last night's opening it's full of that right. stuff and it's lovely and uh, you know i'm not i don't want to rubbish the no the, no no the, the thing but i just worry about the way it's used so much and also public discourse i mean i think part of the mess we're in is we're having an existential crisis in Britain at the moment. You know, that's no secret. Um, but part of that mess is 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 because public discourse has been so debased, really. And we've those of us who developed some kind of articulate what's the word I'm looking for? Learn to be articulate. Learn to be articulate through professional practice. We should be able to help other people. Um, find a, a dignified way of expression that is more effective than, than just being shouty. Mm. So, and I think a lot about this because I don't want to seem to be like the kind of snob my mum was, you know, about, I don't want, yeah, I don't want to impose those values on other people. But I do, I do, the, the technology has outstripped our ability to use it. It's so easy to make a film. It's so easy to record a piece of audio. But it's actually really difficult to write a script. Hmm. Could you express what you wanted to express in a hundred words and do it without swearing and make someone cry? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yesterday evening, when Jenny Donison, the woman who won the creative prize, writing prize, got up on, you know, I got... As part of my 15 minutes of my speech, I got her to get up on the stage and read the poem that she'd written without ever knowing John, the boy with the pigeon, and read it to him in front of a crowd. There were people crying. That poem is four and a half stanzas. It took her probably less than a minute to read, maybe a minute and a half maximum. And And I think to myself, what touched me more listening to that or listening to Boris Johnson's speech from the Conservative Party conference. And, you know, Boris didn't get off the ground. No contest. No contest. We 
I haven't really talked about the bus project. So just to go back again, um, you did go off around around the country in a bus, and um, you know probably the thing you're best known for. Yep. Um, so you know, what are your overriding memories of it? Was it good times? It was a bureaucratic and technological nightmare. <laughs> I mean, it was a 1947 bus that, would, that had been, you know, it had, it had seen a lot of better days. Mm. Um, it was always breaking down, um, and I didn't have the money to repair it. And I hadn't done, I, I didn't know anything about mechanics, so, you know, that was a problem. Yeah, and you um, were pretty much on your own. I lived on my own. I made a point, I've always made a point of working, on, I mean, apart from that June Street with Martin, I've always worked on my own. Mm. Um, we needed two of us to work on that June Street thing. All those animals, the dogs, and you know, somebody had to. We had to. Yeah. You know, one of us had to take it in turns to, <laughs> to assist. Yeah, as to it were. assist. But um, uh, but yeah, working on your own, you're lonely. And actually, people can see that. They can see. Wait a minute, who's this person? Completely on. He's not. He hasn't got an army of people right. behind him. He's not a TV crew. So you're sort of left less threatening in a way by being yeah, and, and you're, you're scared. Yeah, you know, I slept in places where people try to break in in the middle of the night, you know, and um, and uh, um, yeah, I can remember in Hull, yeah, I was asleep in a lay-by somewhere, and some people try to break in, and I, yeah. you know, but, that but is also, scary, yeah, and, and also you're scared because you don't know, you know, you're going to wake up in the morning, you don't know what you're going to find. Sometimes the police chase you off; they will, or they come on board and see you've got long hair, and they want to. Um, you know, go through the place for drugs, or they, or um, the locals um, throw stones at you, which happened once. Mm. Um, or, or, but generally, what happened was that actually, if you're on your own and you open the door, and you're prepared to sit there all day explaining what you're trying to do, people open up, and then when they open up, you listen, and then when you listen, you get stuff. Mm. And it was all about listening to people and. Um, yeah, and the best happened, the best things happened when I was on my own and listening to people. Yeah. Yeah. So not the Cliff Richard experience. Absolutely not at all. A little little less romantic than that, but still in its own way kind of awesome. And also, Uh, you know, like I, I had to park in places where I wouldn't get parking tickets. So the only way I, you know, having accumulated parking tickets, the only way I could make certain I wasn't going to get that, was to appeal to the, cl- the town clerk to give me some place to park. Well, this is before mobile phones. So how do you approach a town clerk in a town that you're going to be in in six weeks' time, a place you've never been to in your life? You know, so you have to write them a letter, but they've got nowhere to send it back to right, because yeah. you, you're on the road. <laughs> you then have to phone them up and follow up the letter. And you're in public phone boxes, putting, putting money, money in, the, in, you're yeah. in the pouring rain somewhere, sticking money and pressing button A and B, and people don't want to talk to you. So, that, you know, talk about a bureaucratic. Now, I spent ages on, on the phone trying to persuade, you know, stubborn town clerks in places I'd never been to let me park and be the free photographic omnibus. Yeah. Man. Yeah. So, like, yeah. So, yeah. So, the practicalities of that are actually, yeah. We we forget that those things were just, like you say, a logistical nightmare that we don't have. You know, now you just have your mobile phone, and uh, yeah, I can imagine that was quite taxing. But you know, were you aware, in a way, that those pictures that you were taking would 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 be, you know, all the more fascinating with the passage of time? 
I was beginning to think that. Yeah. Yeah. I began to think, you know, what is documentary about? And, and I began to say to people when they asked me, what are you doing? I used to say, I'm going to put you in the history books. Mm. And of course, that's what's really lovely about the work being in the Bodleian now. You, know, you really did deliver on that <laughs> promise. <laughs> this is where history books are made. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then, of course, what you then did was, 25 years later, decide to, to find some of these people again and photograph them again. And what inspired that idea? In 1997, Val Williams, bless her, who's been the most wonderful champion of my work down my career, um, with the Impressions Gallery long behind her. She was by then, um, uh, she'd finished her stint directing in um, the Hasselblad uh, Foundation in Sweden, and she was back in London and starting to work at um, uh, London College of Printing. Uh, sorry, University of the Arts, as it is now mm. in London. And um, she kind of separated out the portraits from the reportage work that I did on the bus, you know, because the bus always had this balance of people coming onto the bus, having their portraits taken, chatting, and then telling me stuff. And then I'd spend a day where I'd go out and, you know, see things around the the town and take pictures so there was always this mixture of in my head the, the portraits and the reportage were always mixed up she took the portraits and kind of separated them out and to cut a long story short called them national portraits and uh, along with viewpoint um in salford no longer there uh, an art gallery and um the national museum of photography film and television as it was then she put on an exhibition uh, which I managed to get some funding for from the same people who helped fund the bus. Really? Yeah, Sun Alliance in London put wow. some money into the, that show. And she made these big prints and um, put on a show and wrote a big piece in The Guardian. And it was, um, yeah, I, I, you know, it was like 25 years on. These are most extraordinary th- collection of portraits. And she wrote about it and did a beautiful catalogue, really beautiful catalogue, but in the catalogue, she said that to her, these people, it didn't matter who these people were. What was significant was that they were representative types. And I disagree with her about that. Mm. You know, it's not a, that we fell out or anything. You, you can disagree with people without having a falling out do. But um, you know, I'm still very fond of Val, and she's been a fantastic champion in my work. I got an email from her this morning saying how disappointed she was that she hadn't been able to get here last night. Mm. So we're still, you know, talking to each other and everything. But we did disagree about this. And I thought, I'm going to show you, Val. I'm going to show you that these people represent nothing other than themselves. And they're all individuals and they, they're all special. And I went looking for them. And, mm. uh, and because I was then working in a journalism school and I understood, I've always worked with local newspapers. You know, like when I was on the bus, I used to do bits for the local press. Because if people saw your picture in the paper, they kind of trusted, they understood what you were trying to do. And so when I then needed to find people again, because I didn't have any names or addresses or anything, I just had the negatives and the towns where they were taken and the dates they were taken. Um, I decided, okay, um, we can work with a local paper if we can persuade a local journalist to run an editorial feature. And that's what I did in... In um, 
Barrow in Furness, in Hartlepool and Southampton. I chose those three places because I thought they were likely still to have some community maybe from the left from those times and yeah worked with local journalists in each of those places and and again you never I I never had any money so how do I fund that I funded it by selling like the 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 first one I went back to Barrow and Furness and I sold that, that story the Guardian paid me for it and then I made a radio documentary for the BBC that took me back to Hartlepool, and then I sold the Hartlepool and Barrow and Furness stuff to Granter, who ran it over 40 pages <laughs> and paid for me to go back to Southampton. Mm. So each one generated enough money for me to do the next bit. And um, yeah, and so over a period of five years, I went back to those three different places. Right, right. And yeah, photographed. Um, 17 pairs, mm. 34 photographs, 17 pairs of pictures. And that, that became the Now and Then exhibition, which is the one that's showing at the Bodleian at the moment. Yeah, yeah. And what were the, sort of some of the life stories that, that touched you that, you know, people... Well, you're looking there at the Talk. pictures of Lynn and Stella. Lynn and Stella. Uh, Lynn and Stella, I mean, they, they were here last night. They're, oh, were they? Yeah, oh, oh, brilliant. Yeah, they're wonderful. They were... And the they f- hadn't changed all that much, to be honest. Incredibly, uh, it's just like amazing to see those two pictures side by side. They, you know, they were 17 and 19. Yeah. Lynn, the 19-year-old, was starting to be a fashion model, but she was also kind of dancing in a nightclub in, um, I don't know, in, um, she talks about dancing in a, is it, is it in a cage or anyway oh um, yeah in uh, a yeah in a cage yeah, and, and, uh, <laughs> go-go and, dancing and, Li- and, and Stella teases her and goes yeah wearing tassels you know <laughs> <laughs> and, and Stella was a slightly more serious one the younger one um, and uh, yeah, the, the, I love the interplay this conversation the two of them bantering off each other they're very close and they're very funny and they're good you know they obviously know about enjoying themselves and um Yes, and so, but they, uh, it was funny because in Southampton I got moved on by the police. The police said, okay, you can stay here for today, but you've got to go tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And um, so I took everybody's address. And that was one of the reasons it was easier to find people in Southampton, except that they didn't trust me. They thought I was up to no good. And they gave me a false address. Of course they did. <laughs> Very smart. <laughs> they weren't stupid. They were young, but... <laughs> Yeah. So yeah, they were very nicely brought up girls. Yeah. But what what it meant was when my first exhibition was on Living Like This, which was on at the ICA, the very first exhibition I had in you know of my work from the bus, it was in London at the ICA in 1975. They were on the cover of the book, and I really wanted them to come to the exhibition. You know, I wanted them to see that it wasn't just you know a lad taking pictures of two pretty girls on the street, and um and and I, and I, they didn't. You know, I didn't have a means of contacting them. But they did stimulate one of the great newspaper articles. The Daily Mirror came to visit me in Plymouth. Plymouth, I think. No, no, Torquay. Um, Christopher Ward, who was a columnist for the Daily Mirror, came to do a piece about me, a feature about me for the Mirror. And he called the bus the Great Ordinary Show. And I absolutely love that. And I've, I held on to that all the rest of my career. I always describe mm. the work I'm doing as being celebrating the Great Ordinary. Um, yeah, and 25 years later, you know, of course, they've grown up. They've 
you know had boyfriends and marriages and they've got children and and they've had different ambitions and sort of Lynn's modeling career sort of over now because she's you know in her 40s she's a mother and so on and Stella is starting to get frustrated because her children are growing up and she realizes that she didn't get the education that she's giving to her children and it starts to be a little story of our time you know yeah, like yeah. women are a great um, undervalued resource um yeah, and then I saw them again last night. It's 19 years since I took that second Amazing. picture. Yeah, and they, yeah. they came last night, and they're so nice. They had, well, we had such a nice evening. That was brilliant. Who else showed up from back in the day? Any of your uh, yes. photography um, buddies? Well, there's a, there's a guy from Moss Side came, um, the wonderful, uh, oh, he's such a nice man, Neville Davis, uh-huh. who I photographed when he was seven. He was a kid on the streets of Moss Side. But his, he's an um, uh, uh, African-Caribbean family, and his... But his parents were separated. His mum was bringing him up in a large family, large extended family um, in Moss Side. But when his father came over visiting from New York, he thought the kid was being raised as a sort of ragamuffin, you know, and he said, I'm not having this. And he pulled Neville out of school and took him off to New York and put him through high school when he was 11. So he had all his teenage years with his dad making him do his homework going to high school in um, Queens in New York. And then he came back and did his degree at Salford University um, back in the UK when he was grown up. And, it, and the thing that he's, he's now in um, community development, has had a career in community development, among other things. But one of his dissertation topics was studying what happened in Moss Side. And he has a very, very clear view about what went wrong with the redevelopment of Moss Side. Mm. And it's kind of cultural, counterintuitive. You'd think he'd be on the side of multiculturalism, but he always sees multiculturalism as being a divide and tool, divide and, sorry, I'm losing my words, a divide and rule tool, and in the long run, quite negative for for mm. minority communities. He's a very articulate man and an absolutely lovely man. And he came with his wife, Atia, last night. And, um, yeah, it was so nice to see him again, yeah. But, that, that's over 40 years as well. Yeah, no, it's amazing. Now, I've heard you say that you don't feel like a success. Is that still, is that still true? Um, yeah, I would probably slightly... I mean, after last night, last night went so well and it was such a... They had a good vibe, and I, um, I feel good about myself this morning for that. <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, I spent a lot of my life wishing that I'd taken pictures like Cartier Bress or, or Diane Arbus or Bill Brandt. And it took me a long while to learn that I'd actually taken pictures like Daniel Meadows. Well, I was going to say, yeah, that's the thing. That's what you did. You took pictures like Daniel Meadows. And so, but uh, did you think, do you think you maybe you didn't even get the recognition that you ought to have done? Well, I don't. I was never. I never made money. I was always pretty hostile to mainstream media. Um, uh, I I still have a visceral loathing for advertising photography. Mm. I mean, I don't think photographers should. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. You know, I I just have a love of documentary, and and I feel documentary is a poor cousin, and I feel I was a. You know, a bit like you know, like you, you know. I remember going to the National Portrait Gallery with Val Williams's edit of my national of my of the the bus portrait in the nineties, and, and you know that they said, "Well, what makes you think you could put stuff on here?" I said, "Well, I've just been walking around the Richard Avedon show, and they're all pictures of homeless people." He said, 
but you aren't Richard Avedon, you know. And I said, well, no, I'm not Richard Avedon, but I'm Daniel Meadows, and I did something else different. He said, yes, but the people, you know, we want either the subject matter to be celebrated or the photographer to be celebrated, but neither, your people aren't celebrated and neither are you. So you don't have a place here. And I remember thinking, I don't like that. How can you have something called the National Portrait Gallery that ignores the mass of the population? You know, I mean, how can you, you know, that's... And so I always spit when I walk past the National Portrait Gallery. Yeah. I still do. I have this, yeah. I, I, yeah. And it also does... Anyway, I won't rant on about that. <laughs> um, and then... Um, you know the Tate. I love the Tate and everything about it, um, but it wants art. You know, and, and when you hear its curators talk about what it collects, you know, they they want. We don't just want documentary. We want things that really are considered as art. And I think to myself, well, why is documentary? What is it about documentary that makes it some kind of second class thing? And the V&A is pretty much the same. So where is the home for documentary? You know. Mm. Um, um, and so it's just lovely that the, the Bodleian not only recognises that it likes the pictures, but it wants all the stuff around it, all the newspaper articles, all my journals, all the uh, contact sheets and bits of film, and, and uh, you know, because they all are part of the story. And, you know, I don't know what other institution would gather, collect that stuff. And I feel really, really lucky and I also feel really sorry for all those other people from my generation. I think of us as the last of the analogues, really, mm. who, you know, who made our stuff on flimsy bits of stinky film in dirty darkrooms, um, you know, uh, who've got their negatives under the bed. And the only place that that stuff's starting to surface is um, through Craig Atkinson's Cafe Royal Books. Yeah. That's where you start to see that stuff now. Yeah. Craig's, Craig's doing the work that our national institutions should be doing. Right. He should be a national institution, <laughs> Craig. I'd, yeah. I'd give him a knighthood. I've not met Craig, but, I, I, but I will, I'm going to put, I'll put a link to the Cafe Royal Books for people who aren't familiar with them. I'm sure a lot of the Brits uh, among the listeners are, in, are familiar with them, but maybe not people in other places. But did you feel like your career sort of spanned a kind of golden age for photography, given you know, the way things have gone now? No, I think everybody got to invent their own way of dealing with the world you know and um, no I, th- I think the opportunities are to do stuff are fantastic now mm. I just think you've got to you've got to think outside the well the old cliches yeah. d- d- just because somebody's made a success of a career by going in this direction doesn't mean you sh- follow that direction it means you have to you have to think you have to sit down and you have to say to yourself why do I want to take pictures who am I doing it for? And you have to think, how do I explain that to the person that I'm photographing? Who benefits from what I'm doing? Is what I'm doing going to be so different that it'll have a signature on it? Who else has done the same subject matter? And that's at the heart of it. What is my subject matter? If you don't know your subject matter, you're never going to make nice pictures, good pictures or important pictures. I'm going to leave it there. That's a good place to end it, I think. Daniel, thanks so much for chatting with me. I've really, really enjoyed meeting you. I appreciate the time you've given me. We've talked for nearly an hour and a half, but I could, I could easily 
do another hour and a half, to be honest. But I'm going to give you a break. And uh, yeah, thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me on your podcast. And, uh, and I'm a listener. Now I'm a listener. I listen to, the, to you talking about yourself. Oh, that's great. Oh, my, that's I loved, slightly uh, I love that. embarrassing. Yeah. But, oh, no. Well, that makes me so happy to know that, you, that, you, that you've listened, even to one episode, because, you know, it's just this thing that suddenly, you know, happened, really. And uh, I've spoken to Martin, of course. Um, I've spoken to Brian Griffin. I've spoken to you now. You know, it's, it's a wonderful thing for me to kind of, you know, to be chatting with, 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 with so many amazing people. So, yeah, thanks so much. Thank you.